Good afternoon. This is Rob Nolan, Director of the Emergency Department here at Lakeland St. Joe, and welcome to our General Approach Series. Today with us we have Dr. Mick Mancini, who is the Director of GME and runs the Emergency Medicine Program here at Lakeland St. Joe. And we're going to be focusing on the general approach to chest pain in different populations. Mick, thanks so much for joining us. Well, Rob, this is going to be fun because there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat here, and I think the more that we give tools to those students and even those residents out there of how to work up chest pain in different age groups, the better the off they'll be. Excellent. I remember it wasn't that long ago when I was an intern and my very first day out on the floor, and my first three patients were all chest pain patients, and I thought, geez, what am I going to do? One's an old lady, one's a young kid, one's some construction worker, you know, and I presented this case to my attending and they looked at me like I had two heads. So hopefully at the end of this, we'll have some strategies that people can apply the first day they hit uh, the floors and they're up and running and kind of understand what you look for. So we're going to go over four different cases today. One's a 10-year-old, um, another's a 16-year-old, another's a 38-year-old, and another's a 55-year-old. And, and it's Everyone knows there's all sorts of different pitfalls that can come about in taking care of a chest pain. So I'm going to give you each one of these case scenarios, and if you can just walk us through your thought process and what you're going to order, why you're going to order, and what you're worried about, um, I think this is really going to help people out on their first day. So the first case I have for you, Mick, is a 10-year-old that comes into the emergency department, relatively healthy, parents are there, um, no other real symptoms with this, just has some mid-sternal chest pain. Yeah, interesting that we start off with this case because this is a very typical finding that will happen with an adolescent that comes to the emergency department. And most of the time, the beauty about adolescents is really nothing's wrong with them. Um, and given the fact that this kid who's 10 years old has this chest pain that's probably going to be constant and sharp, um, really makes me feel very comfortable that there's probably nothing going on with this uh, person. Um, the fact that there are no risk factors, there has been no congenital anomalies that this uh, kid has developed over the last few years also adds to that. Now, the one thing I would stress in these young kids is, are there any associated symptoms? So this is a perfect example when you want to find out whether or not this patient chest pain is exertional? Does he have signs of passing out? Does he feel dizzy? Does he get fatigued when he is in sports? If the answer to all of this is no, 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 most of the time the underlying problem that this kid has is most likely musculoskeletal. Um, this is a perfect example that you probably want to do an EKG um, looking for any s significant abnormalities that gets you concerned that an underlying congenital slash arrhythmic uh, event is occurring. Um, and we've talked about this in the past, Rob. Obviously, you're looking for some signs of prolonged QT. You're looking for some Brugada uh, syndrome types of criteria. But if that EKG looks fine, then you can debate whether or not a chest x-ray is warranted. Um, and in this case, uh, one of the more likely causes of uh, uh, chest pain uh, etiologies in kids is more likely a pneumothorax than an acute coronary event. So obviously you can debate the use of a chest x-ray in this as much as you want. But again, 10-year-old, no so associated symptoms, looks relatively healthy, vital signs are good, likelihood, minimize your workup, and reassure parents and let them go home. Perfect. So let me get this straight. Chest pain plus some other symptom, you get a little more concerned. Chest pain by itself, 
most likely benign. Get your screening EKG. Look for those EKG changes in V1, V2 that might be consistent with Brugada's. Take a look for prolonged QT syndrome. Maybe look for some sort of dysrhythmia, a WPW, one of those classic things that we look for for a younger person. If it's not that exciting, plus or minus the chest x-ray if you're worried about a pneumothorax or something else along that line. Um, What's your treatment options for these type of kids? You know, um, if you think it's musculoskeletal, um, some ibuprofen, uh, Motrin type of base medication works really well. Uh, Other times it's just self-limiting. They do quite well. Excellent. Any particular historical questions that you want to focus on with these, with the parents? You know, great question on that one. I think if we move on to the next case, we'll be able to probably go over a few additional things, too. Perfect. With that segue, we'll move on to our second case. This is a 16-year-old who was out playing some basketball, started developing some chest pain, some dizziness. Parents bring him in and say, you know, he's really been pretty healthy. You know, this is an interesting case because, as we alluded to in the first case, um, where there were no associated symptoms, this one actually has associated symptoms. So this would pique my interest a little more. Obviously, the fact that there's some palpitations, some um, associated symptoms with exertion gets me a little bit more concerned. Are we seeing an individual who could have underlying hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Um, And obviously, right age group is in sports. Um, This is an individual you most definitely want to drill with family. Um, Are there any congenital anomalies that have happened within the family that would make me concerned that there could be um, underlying heart disease that is not um, being found in the family from from previous discussions? Obviously, again, is there a congenital uh, prolonged QT? Has there been any signs of um, uh, um, hokum in the past? These are all things that we need to make sure to ask in the history. And then as we're focusing our exam, it's very, very important that we really focus on whether or not there's a murmur present. Because a murmur present in this scenario would really push off to we have to worry about uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. If there's a gallop, if there's any signs of, uh, of um, distant heart sounds, um, you know, if you happen to hear pericardial friction rope, which would be really, really difficult in this setting, but if you do, then you start thinking about, oh, could this potentially be pericarditis or even myocarditis, which again um, is more likely to occur in those seasons that viruses are really, really, really prominent. But again, those are more focal findings that we need to really concentrate our efforts on, particularly in this patient, to make sure that we're not missing. Because those are ideal patients that we know we have to get an EKG and more than likely need to refer timely to a cardiologist, a pediatric cardiologist, to A, get an echo, and B, potentially get more workup than what we can provide in the emergency department. You know what? I, I think I come at it very similarly. The, the first hallmark, as you pointed out, is do you have some other associated symptoms with this chest pain? This is very different, as you pointed out, from the first case in that this is exertional, either presyncope, dizziness, something else that's going on that makes you think that there's going to be a cardiac output issue. And the first thing that pops to mind, exactly as you said, is something like hokum. So that's going to focus your history. And as you said, my first question I'll ask a lot of these family members is, do you have anybody in your family that either dropped, had all sorts of problems with syncope before the age of 30 when they were you know, exercising? If the answer is yes, 
I'm almost done. I mean, I'm going to get my EKG and my respiratory workup, but I'm talking to the pediatric cardiologist with this one. If the answer is no, my next step is to do a focused physical exam, exactly as you're saying, and I'm looking for that murmur. I'm looking for that systolic murmur. I'm looking for any other signs that you know, could be contributing to this. And then finally, I'm going to that EKG and I am drilling down on that EKG. You know, first and foremost, I'm looking for what looks like ventricular hypertrophy in V2, V3. I'm looking for that hokum. But I'm also looking for those other common ones that we're always talking about. The Brugadas, so the right bundle branch block with the ST segment elevation in V1. I'm looking for a prolonged QT because, as you pointed out, it could be a congenital abnormality that's going into there. I'm looking for WPW. Those are the classic things that I'm looking for. If I find any of those, that's going straight to a cardiology consult. And exactly as you said, these don't all have to be admitted, but as long as you've got a pretty good follow-up with cardiology and limit activity, say absolutely no strenuous activity, that's okay. Some of these kids... I'll actually throw a ultrasound probe on their heart and see, do I see anything that's concerning? Not that that's a definitive echo, but that's enough information. If I see something on V2, V3 that makes me think of hokum and I put my echo probe across their heart and I see a thickened septum, boy, when I'm talking to that pediatric cardiologist, you've given them almost everything that they need to know to make their decision from that point. Why don't we go and push a little bit further up? You got it. So let's move it up into the higher age groups. We're going to do a 68-year-old female, history of diabetes, and comes in with pleuritic chest pain that's been there for just this afternoon. You know, interesting case because now you have someone who has um, a risk factor for acute coronary syndrome, although doesn't have a history of acute coronary syndrome given the fact that she has diabetes. But the pain now is pleuritic. And I think pleuritic pain is a difficult type of... um, pain to describe on history. Um, You know, technically, pleuritic pain is one that makes you think of pneumothorax, pneumonia, um, PE, um, and some sort of irritation to the pleural wall itself. But again, this person's um, age of 68 puts them at risk for acute coronary syndrome, and the fact that they have underlying diabetes puts you at risk for acute coronary syndrome. So this is an interesting one because your history points that Pleuritic pain shouldn't be uh, coronary. However, you and I both know that this is masked multiple times in diabetics. So given the age, given the risk um, of diabetes, I would tell you at this point, we do at least need to do a um, cardiac um, workup on this individual with an EKG, chest x-ray, initial cardiac trope on this um, uh, person. So the question I would pose back, Rob, is now we get all this information back and the chest x-ray looks fine, the troponin looks fine, the blood test looks fine, and we're stuck with a 68-year-old who has diabetes only, no acute coronary syndrome, and we have our initial trope that's negative. What do we do next? So somebody like this, I would apply one of the heart scores to, and if you need to, you can look it up. It's on all sorts of different databases, but it's a risk stratification tool that has been utilized to put people in one of three categories. You're either low risk, where you get one or two points, and your chances of MACE, which is major adverse outcome from cardiac disease, is less than 1.8%. Okay, These are typically your young folks that have atypical chest pain, that have normal EKGs, normal 
initial and three-hour troponins, those folks are folks that are really pretty low risk. You can do outpatient. Once you start getting into this higher age group, other risk factors, coronary or history of coronary artery disease, diabetes, hypertension, things along that line. Her story, although not very typical for cardiac ischemia, is concerning enough in a diabetic that would put her at a moderate risk factor. Um, as you go through that whole list, she's going to be one of these intermediate type folks. Those are the type of people, if they haven't had a stress test in the last six months, if they haven't had a cath in the last six months, or if they really haven't had a tight relationship with a cardiologist, then these are the folks that I like to put in observation. And, and two things for that. Number one, I want to trend out those troponins to see if that's what it is. Number two, it gives me a little bit of time just to observe this patient. Sometimes time will reveal these disease processes. You mentioned pneumonia in one of your differentials here. A lot of times we catch these people really early in their disease process. They might have a normal chest x-ray. They might not have any signs of hypoxia. They might only have minimal coughing. But within six to eight hours, this can blossom and bloom, and it gives us a much better idea. So observation medicine for both the cardiac standpoint and some of these other differentials are really kind of nice. And I like to tie my cardiologist in for a little consult in the morning if I can, if it's available to you. That gives them a venue to get into cardiology, a decision point of do we need to do some sort of provocative stress test on somebody who has higher yield. These are the type of patients that I agree. I'm thinking that ischemia is a possibility, but not a high likelihood on this one. So that's how I approach those. Yeah, the beauty about this case is that it really transcends the use of risk stratification tools. And I think that uh, most people have moved away from Timmy scores and moved towards the heart score. And it's interesting that we stress the heart score so much because when you look at those studies, those heart scores of zero to three have about a 1% risk of a MACE um, actually being involved. Um, so that puts you in a pretty good scenario that if your score is between zero and three, these individuals are unlikely to have any major event. Um, but once that score gets above three, then you're in that intermediate stage where you're like, well, we have to do a little bit more on this person. So I think the, the heart score on this one probably applied to even younger people, even in their 30s and 40s, uh, who may have underlying risk factors of coronary artery disease but don't have that age would probably be helpful too. So one of the things that you mentioned in your differential is PE, and that's always a tough one for us to address. You've got this female pleuritic chest pain. She's not tachycardic, maybe no hemoptysis. How are you going to approach that? Tough one, uh, Rob, because the, the risk stratification tool I'd love to use the most is the PERC score. Um, and unfortunately, with the PERC score, um, once you're the age greater than 65, it's an automatic you perked yourself in. Um, but this is a typical finding that as long as I don't find any other markers that are consistent with the PE, meaning tachycardia, recent surgery, lower extremity swelling, history of recent cancer, then I would either feel comfortable not ordering a CT angio or even on this individual, maybe using the Wells criteria to say this person's a low-risk person, this is a typical to, to utilize a D-dimer. Um, and again, this is probably going to stretch the use of D-dimer a little bit, but um, I really enjoy using the PERC better because if I'm concerned about a PE, then I'm just going to go right to CT angio. So in this person's case, although she perks in, given the fact her age is greater than 65, she has no other risk factors for me to think that she has a PE at this point in time. So I would not go straight forward with the CT angio, but I would understand the use of a D-dimer in this scenario. Gotcha. So D-dimer versus history, not going straight to the CT. 
It's going to bring up our next case, which is going to change it just a little bit. This is a 55-year-old male, history of coronary artery disease, two to three stents in the past, and he had a colon resection one week ago for uh, polyposis. Now he's coming in with chest pain, a little bit of dyspnea, some shortness of breath. How are you doing this? You know, great. Um, you know, we didn't allude uh, initially to making sure our vital signs are stable. I mean, the scenario here is that all of our vital signs are stable. But again, if we don't have an individual who's coming in and with normal vital signs, we always have to keep in the back of our mind, are we missing an acute MI right in front of us? Um, because again, we do remember that inferior wall MIs uh, can be associated with right, vent, uh, right ventricular infarcts, which would lead to hypotension. So obviously that's one thing to always keep in your mind. Massive PEs, patients are very unstable when, when they come in. Attention pneumothorax, again, they're going to be unstable when they come in. And even those with pericardial tamponades will be unstable when they come in. So assuming that they are stable at this point in time, we have time to think. Um, so in this scenario, we have someone who's at risk for coronary disease. They've already had coronary disease before. So their heart score will be at least uh, moderate and poss possibly high. Um, and then you add the additional component uh, of having surgery a week ago, which already puts this person at risk for a PE. So given the fact that this patient would perk in, not only would you have to do your cardiac rule out on this individual, but you would have to probably CT angio this person at the same time. Um, again, that's the beauty about these, these risk stratification scores is that if they meet the criteria, you have to just follow through with the workup. So this individual, until proven otherwise, is either acute coronary syndrome or PE, and you can only rule out that PE in this individual with a CT angio. Excellent. So you've given me four, four really good scenarios that I just kind of like to wrap around. Um, and what I'm hearing from you is initially when you go in on all these patients and you're getting your history of chest pain, you're looking for those key indicators that tell you to take it to the next step. So that 10-year-old that came in early on, you were looking for, is it chest pain plus something else? If it isn't, most likely muscle skeletal, get your EKG if that's normal, plus or minus a chest x-ray depending on how they're looking. Great, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, treated as muscle skeletal, you're looking really good. We upped the ante a little bit with that 16-year-old that came in with chest pain plus, this was the plus, the dizziness, lightheadedness, things that made you think about cardiac output problems. These were the ones that you were really focusing on family history, you were focusing on your physical exam for your murmurs, and you were focusing really closely on the EKG, plus or minus a bedside echo if you could get it, and then consultation with your pediatric cardiologist if you felt it was warranted at that time. We bumped it up to the 68-year-old diabetic female who came in with the pleuritic chest pain that was intermediate risk, and you talked about your use of lab versus CT findings for PEs, your EKG findings, and then your risk stratification for them for their other disease processes, but potentially observational medicine to get them plugged into cardiology. And that last one that I, I really liked you talking about was somebody who really had a lot of risk factors. Did they have an interoperative MI? Did they have a PE since they're a week out from this? And you really put all of those as high-risk possibilities and decided to go pretty much for broke on figuring out this is a high-risk cardiac case. This is a high-risk PE case. You're going to your definitive tests on every one of those. Yeah, you know, uh, to add two additional things we didn't get a chance to talk about, uh, obviously, in these older individuals, you're going to find out if they're anemic with your CBC, which anemia in general can lead to, to chest pain. And then finally, yes, 
aortic dissection is always part of your differential likelihood to be um, unstable, but you're looking for a blood pressure discrepancy in those type of individuals, obviously some with long-standing hypertension, uh, plus minus whether you're ever going to find any chest x-ray findings of such. But again, those tend to happen more with unstable um, uh, patients. So uh, I think that does wrap everything up, and uh, hopefully that helped clarify uh, your and my stance on uh, how we work up chest pain. Great, and hopefully this gives people some tools when they pick up the first chart on that first day. They can start thinking about it before they even step in the room. Well, thanks for listening to the General Approach Series podcast on chest pain. Thank you so much, Dr. Nolan and Dr. Mancini. I'm Jesse Keller, and I just want to thank you to all of our listeners. Our podcast show has been growing in size, and I just wanted to make sure everybody knows that I welcome any feedback or maybe some exciting new topics for us to deal with on the show. Um, Please email me at jkeller at lakelandhealth.org. That's jkeller, keller, K-E-L-L-A-R, at lakelandhealth.org, and I would appreciate the feedback. And I'd like to say thanks again for listening.